2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. Before we get there, I want to give us an overview of this letter and give us a good idea of the context of this specific passage. First off, this is at least the fourth letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. And none of the letters have been good letters. None of them have been friendly letters. They've all been kind of harsh because there's a lot going on at this church. Recently, like in the last year at this church, there have been a group of people that have gained influence in this church. And we saw a passage directed at them last week when Paul was talking about the ungodly leaders and how he wanted this church to separate themselves from those people. So that is going on. So that's why the first six chapters of this letter, Paul has really indirectly and directly at times, he's been defending his ministry. Because if you're gonna go after a church and try to gain influence in a church, the best way to do it is to go after the leaders, to go after a guy like Paul who planted the church. He spent 18 months with these people. And so they're going after the leader of this church to try to discredit him because the big deal is they know if they can discredit Paul, they can discredit his message, and then eventually they'll discredit the gospel and this church will fall away. That's what Paul is very concerned about. So that's why he's writing these letters. That's why he's visiting them. He's getting ready to visit them again soon. And so this letter is actually kind of a warning letter. He, he mentions a, a few times throughout the letter that he is coming soon. And he said back in chapter one, this was kind of a warning. Verse 23, he says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And so Paul had planned to come visit instead of writing this letter, but he decides, no, that would not be a good visit. Things are not good right now. I'm gonna send a letter first to kind of prepare them. And this was a harsh letter. And we'll talk more about that. But he sends this letter and he sends it with Titus. And we'll talk more about Titus as well. But he sends it as kind of a warning letter to prepare them to say, hey, I'm coming. So that's the first six chapters as he's defending his ministry. He's getting ready in chapter eight and chapter nine. He's gonna talk to them about an offering that they had discussed a year before this, and the Corinthians were super excited a year ago to give to this offering. And so Paul is gonna let them know, hey, I still want you guys to be generous. I still want you to give to this offering. So I'm coming to collect that offering as well. So he's defending his ministry and he's getting ready to ask them to be generous. And so what we're gonna see in this passage is it's kind of a transitional passage. It's one of those in-between passages. He just got done asking them, or commanding them really to separate themselves from these ungodly leaders and he's getting ready to ask them to be generous. And so that's where we are this morning. In our passage this morning, Paul, what he does is he reaffirms his love for the Corinthians. He reaffirms his commitment to the Corinthians. And we see Paul do this in each of his letters really, even in the most intense situations. Like you think about 1 Corinthians, that was an intense letter. You think about Galatians. He encourages these believers because he understands that encouragement is a very big part of the Christian life. Encouragement is huge. So that's the big idea that I hope we'll see this morning in this passage is the importance of encouragement. 
And so let's go ahead and look at our passage, chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. God's word says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And so this morning, really what I wanna do, I wanna keep it simple. I wanna ask two questions as we look at this passage. The first question is, what is Paul communicating to the Corinthians? Another way you could ask this is, what does this passage mean? And then the second question I wanna ask of this passage is, How should this passage affect our lives? And so we might call this interpretation and application. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start out looking at verse 2. Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. What does Paul mean when he says, make room in your hearts for us? If we look back at just the last chapter, chapter 6, And look at verses 11 through 13. We see that Paul is simply restating here what he said there. And there he said, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, and I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So what Paul is doing in this passage and really throughout the entire letter, is he's making an appeal to the Corinthians. He's reaching out to them to try to repair and restore their relationship. He's making an appeal, but he's also wanting to be very clear with them about the situation. That's why he says, make room in your hearts for us. When he says that, he's saying, the problem is on your end. The ball is in your court. We've opened ourselves to you. We've done all that we can to repair this relationship. It's your turn. As we'll see in just a moment, the Corinthians, they've already made progress. Paul is already happy and excited and joyful about the progress they've made, but there's still some work to be done. So Paul wants them to continue in that direction. And so let's look at what he says in the next verse. Well, actually still in verse two. He says, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Now, we've already seen in this letter 
that there had been certain accusations made against Paul. There were rumors that had been started that said Paul had been dishonest with the Corinthians. That for that 18 months that he was with them, he took advantage of them. He deceived them in some way. That's the rumors going around. That's why he says things like he said in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And then again in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So in this passage, Paul is speaking very clearly, saying, these accusations that have been made about me, none of them are true. There's no truth in them. We have not wronged you, even from the beginning. Paul is saying, you guys have been lied to. You've been deceived. That's why he says in the next verse, I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. It's important to know that Paul has no intention of harming this church. He's not trying to discourage them. He's not trying to beat them down. Everything that he has done so far and everything that he will do, he does because he loves them. He does because he cares for them. He does not want them to be taken advantage of, which is exactly what's happening with these ungodly leaders in the church. And so Paul is on the offense when it comes to this situation. Now, Emily and I, my wife, we went to the beach last weekend. And we went with my brother, his wife, and they've got a two-month-old named Kendall. And I was going to show you some pictures of her, but she's super cute. So I don't want to distract you all uh, from the message, but she is very cute. And it's Saturday afternoon. We're at the beach And we're getting ready to go out on the beach. So because my brother Nick and his wife Christy are such great parents, they really are, they love their daughter. And so what do they do? They cover her with sunscreen from head to toe. And so they even even lifted up the little neck rolls in her neck to make sure they get all all of her skin. And so they're covering her in sunscreen. Now, as you could imagine, Kendall was not crazy about this while it was going on. She was actually very angry. Now, she's a baby, so babies cry, right? That's how they communicate. They don't have words. They can't tell you, you know, mom, I've got poop in my diaper, or mom, I'm hungry. And so babies cry all the time. It's not a big deal. But Kendall has a normal cry, and then she's got kind of an angry cry. And so Nick starts putting the sunscreen on her, and she begins to let out this angry cry. This cry that if she could speak, it sounds like she would be saying, why are you doing this, this to me? Um, and it was because Kendall did not understand that the reason why her dad was doing this is because he loves her. He cares for her. He doesn't want her to get burnt. He doesn't want her to be in pain. He wants to take care of her. In the same way, Paul loves the Corinthians. Everything he is doing, he's doing because he loves them. He doesn't want them to be hurt. Most of all, he doesn't want them to be led away to another message 
that would cause them to fall away from Christ. That's what Paul is after in this passage and in this letter. And so in these verses, he lets them know again that he's trying, he's not trying to hurt them or beat them up. You know, he's already written them at least four letters. There's been a couple of bad visits. By this time, some of the Corinthians might have begun to think that situation's almost, you know, out of hand. It's not getting any better. And so Paul reassures them, I'm committed to you and I'm for your good. So let's look at verses four through five. He says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. In verse five, Paul really picks up where he left off in chapter two. So we know that Paul wrote a letter right before this. I talked about that. It was a harsh letter. Many people call it the letter of tears. And he either sent Titus to deliver the letter itself or he sent the letter and then he sent Titus right after to see how they had responded. And he planned to meet up with Titus not not long after that in the city of Troas. So Paul goes to Troas, but as we read in chapter two, when he gets there, Titus isn't there. And so immediately, Paul expects the worst. He might have been worried about Titus's safety. It wasn't necessarily safe to travel on foot for hundreds of miles during that day. Or maybe Titus had experienced resistance from the Corinthians. Maybe things had gone bad and there'd been a bad response and maybe Titus had encountered persecution. Paul says in verse eight that momentarily he had even regretted writing the letter. He thought to himself that maybe he had been too harsh this time. And so he's probably thinking that the situation has gone bad, gone from bad to worse. And remember, it's not like it is today. It's hard for us to relate to Paul in this way here in 2017 because today someone can be on the other side of the world And we can talk to them on the phone or we can Skype with them or we can FaceTime them and see them face to face. We can send a text message and receive a response within seconds anywhere in the world. We have a microwave. We have fast food. We're not used to waiting on anything these days. Paul, on the other hand, he sent this letter to Corinth and now he has to wait weeks, maybe even months, before he has any idea the kind of response he's going to get. So imagine how agonizing that is. Paul is anxious. He doesn't know if the situation will get better or if it will go from bad to worse. So after Paul can't find Titus in Troas, he says he goes on to Macedonia. And after he arrives in Macedonia, things don't get any better for Paul. He says in verse 5, Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So as it was normal for Paul, whenever he would go into a city, he experienced persecution. He experienced resistance and conflict. Now, all this just made the situation worse, but it's helpful for us to understand all of this, for us to be able to get a sense of what Paul has experienced and what he's feeling as he's writing this letter. Let's look at verses six and seven. Paul says, 
but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So Paul goes to Macedonia and seemingly out of nowhere, Titus shows up. Now I was looking at a map yesterday. If you, if you look at Troas on a map and you look at Corinth, Macedonia is kind of right in the middle. And so chances are Paul doesn't find Titus in Troas. He starts heading towards Corinth and they end up meeting in the middle. And Paul says in verse six that God comforted him. Do you see that? So he gives God the credit for comforting him. But let's pay attention to this. How does God comfort him? We see two ways. The first way Paul mentions is by the coming of Titus. After weeks and months of agony and anxiety, he finally sees Titus. He's encouraged. He's overjoyed. The second way that God comforts Paul is by the fact that Titus had been comforted and welcomed by the Corinthians. In other words, The Corinthians' response to Paul's letter had been a positive response. So there's good news there. This greatly encourages Paul. Now, the reason why I point this out is because normally when I pray for someone to be comforted or I pray for myself to be comforted and maybe that God would give someone peace, I'm thinking in my mind that he's just going to do it supernaturally, that he's just going to give them a feeling of peace and comfort And make no mistake, he does do that. But what we see in this passage is that God does not work in this situation in that way. He uses Titus and the Corinthians to comfort Paul. God uses his people to comfort his people. God is the one doing the comforting, but he's using his people to do it. In verse 7, Paul says that Titus told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. What he's saying here is that the Corinthians are eager to make things right. They responded positively. They're eager to repent. They've mourned over their sin. They've mourned over how they've treated Paul. They've mourned over the fact that they've been led away and they've trusted these ungodly leaders. They long to see Paul and repair the relationship. Notice that Paul gives the credit for all of this to God. That's because Paul knows and he recognizes that God is orchestrating every single event in this situation. He's orchestrating every single event, period. Paul knows that. It's not just that the Corinthians, it's not, it's not that the Corinthians are just so awesome and so godly that they decided by their own power and wisdom to repent. Paul knows better than that. He knows that the repentance itself is a gift from God. The positive response to Paul's letter was a gift of God to the Corinthians. He opens their hearts and he opened their minds to give them the ability to respond positively. Paul recognizes that. That's why he gives God the credit. Now what Paul is communicating also to the Corinthians is how God has used them to bring him joy. Paul is essentially saying to them, God is working in your lives. Do you see that? God has not abandoned you. 
God is still moving and working among you. In the same way that Paul hasn't given up on the Corinthians, Jesus has not given up on the Corinthians. It's important for Paul to show them that. Jesus is the one who gave up his life for the Corinthians so that they could be saved, so that they could be with him forever in eternity. Jesus cares a lot more about the Corinthians than Paul does. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. God is still working in your life. He wants them to see that Jesus has not left them on their own. Let's read the final two verses of our passage, verses eight and nine. Paul says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, Ben is gonna preach on the next passage next week, and it has a lot to do with what we just read. So I'm not gonna go into too much detail there. But let me just say this. Paul wants the Corinthians to see him celebrating their response to this letter. He could have just skipped over this. He could have not said it. He could have jumped right into, hey, I'm coming to collect some money. I want you guys to be ready. He could have done that, but instead, he wants them to see him celebrating how God has worked in their hearts. Paul wants the Corinthians to be encouraged. He wants them to know that they have taken a big step. They've taken a difficult step. They've responded well. They've shown a lot of maturity in their response. As we'll see later in this letter, the situation is not over, far from it. Paul is planning to visit them shortly. Paul still has to deal with the ungodly leaders in this church. There's gonna be a conflict there. Paul is going to ask them to be generous with their money, to give to the poor believers in Jerusalem. Paul has asked them, he just got done asking them to separate themselves from the ungodly leaders. It's not gonna be easy. Situation is far from over. There's still some work to do, but Paul wants them to know he's rejoicing. He's excited. He's been comforted by how they've responded to his letter. And so let's summarize what we've seen in the passage. Let's ask that first question. What is Paul communicating to the Corinthians? What does this passage mean? So what we've seen here is in this passage, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians. That's why he says, make room in your hearts for us. He's appealing to them to continue what they've started. They responded well to his letter. And so when he comes, he, want them, he wants them to respond well and welcome him. Paul also reaffirms his commitment to the Corinthians. He encourages them by helping them to see God's work in their lives. He encourages them by celebrating the progress that they've made. He is filled with joy because of their positive response to his correction. And so let's ask the next question. How should this passage affect my life? As I mentioned earlier, this is kind of an in-between passage. This is a transitional passage. There are no explicit commands that are given that we could say, go and do likewise. There is no major theological point for us to dig deeper into. And so let's say you come across this passage 
you're doing a morning devotional going through 2 Corinthians, and you come to this passage, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to apply it to your life? Well, one thing we need to understand about the Bible is that though it was written by man, it was completely inspired by God. And in the words of John Piper in his new book, which, by the way, I highly recommend, came out a couple weeks ago, it's on reading the Bible. And in this book, he says that when he, when he talks about inspiration, God inspired the Bible in such a way that he guided the writers of Scripture to express his intentions through their own. He says that to grasp or understand what these human authors intended to communicate in their particular historical situation is also to grasp or understand God's own intention for the situation. That's why we spend time and do the work required to understand what Paul was intending to communicate to the Corinthians. That's why interpretation is important. Because what Paul intended is ultimately what God intended. So Paul writes this passage to encourage the Corinthians, which means that God himself intends to use this passage to encourage the Corinthians. So what this tells us, looking at this passage, is encouragement is important. Encouragement was so important that God wanted to encourage the Corinthians through this letter. And if we're going to be the kind of church that, like, like the church in Corinth, deals with conflict, deals with certain situations, rejects ungodly leadership and ungodly false teaching, and repents of sin and is generous towards those in need, if we're going to be that kind of a church, if we're going to continue to mature and multiply to leave a gospel legacy, which is our mission statement, then we're going to need encouragement. We're going to need to encourage each other consistently. Each of us has a need to be encouraged and to encourage others. And so what does encouragement look like? How can we encourage each other consistently? Now, at this point, if you're studying this passage, you might look at different passages that talk specifically about encouragement. But let's say we're just going to look at our passage here in 2 Corinthians. How does this passage help us, Integrity Church, to encourage each other. Now, if we look closely at this passage, not just verses two through nine, but in chapter six and seven as a whole, we see at least two ways that Paul encourages, encourages the Corinthians. The first way, and the biggest way, is he encourages them with the gospel. The greatest news that's ever been told, the greatest gift that we could ever give each other is to encourage each other with the gospel. The second way he encourages them is by pointing out how God is working in their lives. So let's look at the first one. He encourages them with the gospel. Look at verse one of chapter seven. We looked at this last week. Paul says, now remember, he had just commanded them to separate themselves from these ungodly leaders. And so to give them the motivation and the strength to do that difficult thing, he says in verse one, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
And so when Paul says, since we have these promises, he's referring to the gospel. Now, he listed out two or three specific promises in that passage. He quotes at least three different Old Testament passages. The first one's Leviticus 26, 12, where God promises that he will make his dwelling among his people. He says, I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 11, saying, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. So these passages, which from the Old Testament, they were temporarily true for Israel. And the reason why I say temporarily is because the Old Covenant's passed away. God relates to people through the New Covenant. He relates to believers through the New Covenant now. But they were temporarily true back in the Old Testament for Israel. They are even more true now under the New Covenant for believers, for God's people. That's why Paul takes them from the Old Testament. He brings them over to the New Testament because these are gospel promises. And the reason why I say that is the only way that these things are true The only way that God will be with us, he will be our God, we will be his people, the only way that's true is because of the gospel. So these are gospel-rooted promises, and that's exactly how Paul encourages the Corinthians. Now, when I say the gospel, I don't want to just assume that we're all on the same page. And so what do I mean when I say the gospel? Well, despite what our culture might tell us, we are not basically good People. The Bible says something totally opposite. The Bible tells us that we are sinners, that God created us in his image for his glory. He designed us to find our ultimate joy and meaning in him. But instead of living according to our design, we've rebelled against him. We've rejected his authority And we seek ultimate joy in anything and everything but him. That's what the Bible means when it says that we're sinners. And because we're sinners and because God is just, he is holding our sin against us and will ultimately punish us for it. This is a great problem. This is the biggest problem on the earth. But the good news is God offers a solution. He offers his own son. The good news, the gospel that I'm referring to is the news that says 2,000 years ago, the eternal son of God came to earth as a man. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly delighted in God. He perfectly obeyed God. And then he died a brutal death on a Roman cross. And on that cross, God the Father counted Jesus guilty of his people's sin. He laid that guilt on Christ, and Christ died on the cross. He suffered the punishment that we deserve. And then he was buried, and then he rose again, and then he ascended back to heaven. He's now ruling and reigning the universe in power. And anyone that repents and believes that message... And by repent, I mean acknowledging your sin, bowing your knee to his leadership, trusting in Jesus to save you from God's judgment. God promises that he will save that person who repents and believes. 
That's a promise. This is the gospel. This is our only hope of ever being made right with God. There's no other hope. There's no other way. God wants his son glorified for what he did on the cross in the place of sinners. That's what it's all about. There's no other way. The gospel's our only hope. Now, when someone is made right with God, they're adopted into God's family. They are given eternal life, which is the unimaginable privilege of being with God and enjoying him forever. That's the most encouraging message we could ever share with each other. And that's exactly what Paul does throughout this letter. He encourages the Corinthians with the gospel. So how might we encourage each other with the gospel? What does that look like? Let's say someone is struggling with loneliness. You might encourage them by reminding them that God has promised to be with us forever. He's never gonna leave us. He's never gonna let us go. He'll be with us forever. And because of the gospel, we can be assured of this. He gave us his son. He's already proven his love. So he's gonna be with us forever. Maybe you struggle with regret. This is a big one. I might remind you of Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, that God is in absolute control. And because of the gospel, we can be assured that he is working everything together for our ultimate good and for his glory, if you're one of his children. Maybe you struggle with anxiety. This is something I've struggled with. Let me remind you of Matthew chapter six, where Jesus tells us about his father. He says, my father, if you're one of his children, is gonna take care of you. He's gonna provide everything that you'll ever need. The good news of the gospel is the greatest encouragement that we could ever give each other. The second way that Paul encourages the Corinthians, and we've seen this, is it's by pointing out how God is working in their lives. Paul tells the Corinthians that God used them to bring him great joy and comfort. In chapter one, he said he was despairing of his life when he was in Macedonia. And so Paul tells the Corinthians God used you to encourage me. Paul does this in all of his other letters as well. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 4 through, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, he says, I give thanks to my God always. I give thanks to my God always for you. There we go. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Philippians chapter one, this is a good one, verses three through six, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of the partnership in the gospel, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so about four and a half years ago, 
And I haven't shared this with many people. But I went through a pretty serious season of doubt. I struggled. For, it lasted for about two months. It was one of the most difficult times of my life. For two solid months, a lot of times I felt like I could not even think straight. I wasn't sure that I was a believer. I wasn't sure that I had ever believed I would open my Bible and all these questions, all these doubts would come. I did not know what to do, honestly. I felt like I could not think straight. One of the things I did which was not helpful is I I isolated myself from everyone. I had been leading a small group at that time, so I stepped down from that. And I remember while this was going on, Ben Tugwell, he's not here, so I'll talk about him. He reached out to me, and he asked me if I wanted to go to lunch. And so I did, and I met him at his office, and we went to lunch. And for about an hour, he just asked me questions and wanted to know everything that was going on. And so I I explained it all to him. And then I can remember on our way back to his office, he just began to encourage me. And I'll never forget this. And what he did was he, he began pointing out all the ways that he had seen God work in my life. He had known me for about a year and a half at that time. And so he began to to tell me how he had seen God work in my heart and how God had brought me out of a bad situation and worked in my life. And so this was encouraging. I could not argue with what Ben was saying. He told me flat out, Mike, there's no doubt that you're a believer. There's no doubt. He wouldn't say that to everybody, but Mike, there's no doubt you're a believer because I've seen the evidence. And you don't know how encouraging that was to me during that time, honestly. At a time where I could not see the work of God in my own life, Ben pointed it out, and many others pointed it out over the next few months, and that season of doubt came to an end. But God used other believers to encourage me in that way. And so I can tell you firsthand that sometimes the most encouraging thing that you can say to another believer is how you've seen God work in their life. So let me just ask a couple of questions and then we'll close. When's the last time that you encouraged another believer? And I'm not talking about, you know, nice shirt or your hair looks good. You know, that stuff's nice. We should say that. But I'm talking about encouraging another believer with the gospel. Encouraging another believer by saying, hey man, I've seen you grow in the last few months. God is really at work in your life and it's obvious. When's the last time that you did that? Is that something that you do consistently? It's not something that I do consistently. So this is convicting for me. If not, what steps can you take today to begin to encourage other believers consistently. It might be that you wake up 30 minutes earlier so that you can pray for other people because normally when you pray for other people, they're on your mind and you're, you're wanting God to work in their life. Or how about you begin meeting one-on-one with someone to read the Bible together? That's just a very simple way to do it. And if you need help with that, honestly, I'll just... Throw this out there. We've got these books out in the lobby. They're five bucks a piece, one-to-one Bible reading, and they just go through step-by-step what you could do 
uh, what it would look like for you to meet with somebody one-on-one. But you don't even really need this book. Just meet with somebody. Encourage each other with God's word. We've seen in our passage this morning that encouragement is important. May God help us to become a church that encourages each other well. Let's pray.